You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes we talk about on this podcast by heading to the show notes or at sarahraven.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Sarah Raven. And the lovely thing is, today we've also got Arthur back. So it's really, really fantastic to have him back on the podcast to chat. And we're actually going to chat about his new book, which is what he's been doing. One of the things anyway, and we'll talk about that. But as it's going to be Easter, I thought it was just the most relevant thing of all to talk about his book, which is called Chicken Boy, My Life with Hens, which will include lots of chat about eggs as well, of course. So hugely welcome, Arthur. It's lovely to have you. Hello. Lovely to be back with everybody. Missed missed it. Oh, good. So tell us, before we get cracking on the book, tell us what yeah. you've been up to a bit. <laughs> well, well, as, as you know, I had... Um... I had to finish chicken, this chicken book off, and I've literally just sort of at the stage where editing Flower Yard 2. Yes. So not, not to start off with endless self-promotion, but um, doing two books has been but it's been fun. I have, to, I have to be honest, doing a second gardening book was a lot easier than the chicken book. Yes. I yes. think you get used to that format of, of garden books and, you know, you know, it is lovely double page spreads and yes, and more photographic than word. So yeah, yeah, it's been it's been nice doing another garden book, and also lots of drawing and um, yeah, that kind of thing. Well, that all sounds nice and and mm. but also hard work, I know, and and keeping you very busy. But the thing we're here to talk about today is Chicken Boy, which is this really really personal book that Arthur has done about what hens and Arthur was the first person to teach me that those things with feathers on are not chickens actually they're hens because chickens is the sort of thing you eat on your plate that has a white breast and is served with tarragon and hens are those lovely fluffy things with character that are wandering around the garden or, or whatever and he actually calls them the girls so tell me Arthur what what sort of got you first of all into hens just just having a natural affinity with them, I, I suppose, like most, most children have a natural affinity with, with puppies and kittens. It, for me, it was chickens. Yeah. And I've no idea why that was, because I think a lot of, of people that become poultry fanciers, they they tend to have a dad or a, a grandparent maybe who's in the fancy, as it's called. Yes. Like when you go to any agricultural show, quite often when you're talking to people, it's normally handed down, isn't it? You know, all this line of, of cattle or sheep or chickens or pigs normally it's handed down through the family, but it wasn't, that wasn't the case with me. I was just the, the odd, the odd child that, uh, out of quite an urban family liked, like chickens. But luckily when I say urban, where I grew up and where my mum and family still live, it's ex mining town and we've still got, you know, a few allotments and that's where the chickens were, were kept and, and still are kept by a lot of people, luckily. Mm. So that's where the kind of affinity began. Can I just read, can I interrupt you yeah. and read the most lovely yeah. quote, which actually starts the book. And I, I just wanted to read this because I, I just, I just think it's incredibly charming and and accurate knowing you as I do. So <laughs> it, it says, I'm a toddler the first time I meet a chicken and we're equal in size and height. The hen has tiny eyelashes, a strawberry jam face and a voice of purring clucks. 
I sense a happy spirit of inquisitiveness and smile in fascination. From that moment on, I'll always love the company of chickens. It's hard to explain completely other than to say that it's an instant attraction, one owed especially to their movement and energy. I've found my tribe. And that's just such a great opening to a book on hens. It, cause it's, it, and it's so you as well. I mean, the way you write is so from the heart and so personal. And we'll talk quite a bit more about that because this is such a personal book. Oh, thank you. But yeah, so carry on. So, so, so tell us, you know, where the, the John and the first, the first flock that you came across. Yeah. So, so John was like your typical old, old guy on the allotment plot and he was Polish. So being a, a little boy, I couldn't understand a word he said. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but my granddad, Ted was a, a builder and, um, you know, tended was one of those people that was friends with a lot of people in the town and he befriended John. And so he'd take John all the stuff that he'd find off demolition sites for his allotment. So John's yes. greenhouse was just made up of all these odds and sods of doors and windows. And and the whole greenhouse was completely ramshackled. I mean, I think that's why I loved so much coming to Perch Hill for the first time, because it was like the first time I'd been somewhere where all the things I loved were, but it was done there beautiful. Whereas my my childhood was... I loved all the things within the allotments, but it was all very rough and and quite ghastly, to be honest. Yeah, aesthetically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, it was all very practical, but it wasn't visually gorgeous. You know, if if there was a dolly tub, it was probably full of rotting potatoes or something like that. You know, that was the, that's the difference. Yeah, but that's why I love allotments still to this day. You know, I, I'm always on the train, and my heart jumps when I see you know a big patch of allotments because I just immediately you know, intrigued by what's in them and yes. what's growing and because they're all so unique in character. Yeah, I really love love allotments because of, of having that childhood escape into them. They're just really, they can be bonkers places. It takes you back. Yeah. Yeah. But am I right in thinking that not all allotments are allowed chickens? Is well, it's a really good question. And, and um, you're always learning, aren't you? And actually, any allotment plot that's putting their feet down with with keeping hens they're actually not right because there was a really old legislator that says on allotments you are allowed it's something it's so old it's like let every man and woman keep their own bees and also their own rabbits and their own hens ah. so this all like um tick box allotment culture yes. um is quite a new thing and um I think you would be, if you're of that nature, to really put your foot down with the the management of allotments and say, well, actually, it's it's my cultural right to have rabbits or bees or hens. So, so it's like a small, small holding, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's what allotments were for. It was for food and hens, you know, the laying of eggs and also bees for honey and rabbits because we used to eat more rabbit yeah. than, than chicken. That was part of a cultural necessity. So it's only lately that allotments, I think, have been made to be a bit more prim and proper with, you know, you know, modern culture. I found that really interesting, actually. This, you, you reference that in the book, that mm. the evidence from compost heaps, I think it was, that was massive amount of consumption of rabbit post-war, yeah. much more than chicken. And obviously, we've completely reversed that. I mean, even in our mm. local butcher, I wanted to get a couple of rabbits the other day to make a pie. And I had to order them specially, really? <laughs> and even that they were frozen because he couldn't he couldn't get them. You know, no one's no one's doing that. No, we've got a real odd vision of what good meat is, haven't we? I mean, I would love to be able to go into Tesco this afternoon and buy a wood pigeon breast, and I I, I won't be able to. Yeah, <laughs> um, That's so true. Yeah, 
And so, so I know the allotments are incredibly important, but will you also tell us about your relationship from when you were very young? I mean, I think a toddler with Chatsworth and with uh, the Duchess of Devonshire. Yeah. I mean, again, to to say I've I've grown up in an urban place, just been so lucky to have grandparents on my mum's side that that got us out into the countryside because they were ramblers. Mm. And the Peak District National Park is is about forty minutes on a good day from from Hucknall. Mm. So we were we were exposed to the countryside very early on, and we used to stay on a on what was a, a working farm with you know beef cattle. So I remember very very early on witnessing the birth of a, a cow and, and her calf on this farm. Mm. So it wasn't like we were, we were not. And that's why, you know, with you, when your cows are calving, you know, me and you could just get straight in there with them. Cause I've, mm. I've kind of grown up with it, even though I've not been surrounded by it every day. Yes. Um, yes. So, so the Dar- Derbyshire Peak District is, as I've said, 40 minutes away. And the big treat of going there would be to go to Chatsworth, which um, is just the most beautiful beautifully kept country estate with livestock. And when I was little, Deborah Devonshire's time as, as Duchess was really at a peak of, of Duchesshood, as, as I think you'd call it. Mm. And it was a very, looking back, a very, an amazing time because I don't think you'd be able to do it now. She had about 300 chickens just free ranging in a in a public car park. Yeah. And I really can't imagine at Perch Hill you, you doing the same thing in your car park. Do you know, I really um, want to have a Shetland <laughs> pony in my car park. What, r- running loose? Yes, I've got, I've got a great friend who's a painter called Kate Boxer. We went to visit her the other day and we got out of the car and there you had to open the gate and you got into, what a good idea, because you've got to have a gate. And so you open the gate and there was this tiny Shetland pony who then kind of came up and definitely wanted breakfast and was 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 quite inquisitive. But it really gave me an idea that I either want a couple of donkeys or a couple of Shetland ponies in the car yeah, park. <laughs> anyway, I think you're right that the visitors might not want it, but maybe we could have it in our own car park up mm. here well people are just so terrified a lot of people are really yeah. terrified of of animals loose aren't they now yeah. everything's got to be behind a fence and yeah but anyway De- debo just had them literally mm. free-ranging so you'd get out of the car and be surrounded by by her chickens because they were laying eggs for the farm shop that she'd set up um, mm. and that was like her side of things uh she did the farmyard and the farm shop and how did she get them to lay in the same place, because when our hens get mm. out, you know, I'm ever finding in the steeper Gigantia a great sort of posse of yeah. eggs. I mean, she she had several very big, luxurious hen houses. And I suppose because the car park was so busy, that often didn't happen. Whereas, you know, your hens are, are often in a very tranquil, quiet garden, aren't they, in, in early morning and afternoon. Yes, that's um, true. And also they were all just typical, you know, Heinz 99 brown chickens. Okay. Which are quite easily, you know, persuaded to lay where you want them to. Right. Uh, whereas okay. the older breeds do tend to, to go their own way a little bit more. Okay. And so then uh, tell us about your first hens that you, so you, you'd visited John's and you'd visited Chatsworth often, and then you got some of your own. So chat us through that. Yeah, eventually, after a lot of a lot of pleading, I did, and they were just typical hybrid brown ones, the sort of expatry hens that a lot of people now are are rescuing, and they laid brilliantly well. Not particularly good for a small garden at all, to be honest, because they're just they're just basically like little pterodactyls with with very sharp talons. Yeah, and so even though it was quite a big garden, as soon as you'd let them out, they were straight on you know the freshly dug vegetable beds. Yeah. But that was a case of the reason they were doing that was because they were in a very small arc, 
Yeah. They were quite bored in the arc. And so as soon as they were let out, they were like, you know, dogs that hadn't been taken for a walk. They were very desperate to to be chickens. And I think that's a problem that a lot of people get into. You know, they think, oh, we'll have the chickens in a little corner of the garden mm. and it'll be lovely, like a picture postcard. Mm. And then you come to let them out into a garden and they just go mad because they're bored. So that was what was happening with the first, the first couple of lots of chickens that we had. That was the case. And it was a bit of a nightmare because mm. they do just trash everything but it's not their fault really because they're just desperate to to be like jungle fowl you know yes under the vegetation and things so we learn eventually to kind of plant the garden more with robust planting uh, with plants that would be able to take the hens and so it just became a lot more harmonious uh, in the end uh, after a few years there's a whole chapter on gardening with hens, yeah. which I found really helpful. I get asked that so often when I'm teaching is, you know, Sarah, what are the plants that can take deer, rabbits and hens? Mm. So there's a really good practical tips on the things that you found are hen resistant. And I know you were the person who encouraged me to put Narcissus Cragford in the hen run here, as well as a very robust grass lay. And we now have proper grass rather than mud. And in the spring, we have a series of narcissus. And I thought that they wouldn't eat alliums either, but actually they do. Do <laughs> they? Yes, ah. they, we, we tried it with alliums, and I really thought that they wouldn't like it. Because of I mean, the onion taste. Yeah, they probably like the onion taste. Ah. And then the other thing that um, you've taught me, and I was reminded again reading this the book again yesterday, is um, about the flight feathers. And one of the things that, I mean, ours are free range, but they're in a little sort of field in the corner of the Perch Hill plot. And uh, we've been very lucky. We'll come on to foxes, but we have been lucky to touch 25 pieces of wood. But we haven't on the whole clipped the wings of our more wandering varieties like the Frisians, because you've taught me that, of course, you need them to be able to fly up into the air to get away from the fox. And so much as it's tempting to contain them, by clipping their their flight feathers um, or some of them. Anyway, maybe you could talk yeah. us through that, Arthur. Well, it, it just it just amazed me as soon as I started my garden training how, again, going back to how Debo had her farm animals at Chatsworth, how sort of averse people had become to to any animals within gardens, really. Yeah. Like I remember at Kew, they, all the gardeners, really, uh, they hated the peacocks. <laughs> Yes. Because, you know, the peacocks will just wander through the, the Victorian bedding beds. And so I was one of the few that actually saw that as kind of like a, a add-on to all the gorgeousness of the flower bed. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, I, I do get it. It's it's not fun when you've just planted, I think when I was last at Perchill, poor Josie was having a real hard time with these snapdragon seedlings that were close to the hen run. Yeah, that's And so, it. of course, they were the first like line that would get pecked. Yeah. So we covered that over with loads of silver birch and that meant that the hens couldn't get to them. And so you just have to think a bit like a chicken and think, well, I'm not going to plant my lettuce right by the hen room because that's like just having a big buffet yeah. for them to just gorge on as soon as they've got over that fence. Whereas if you've got a hedge of rosemary, they're not going to go for the rosemary. I mean, the biggest thing that hens love is grass. So I'm, I was so pleased when we got there with your hen run and we managed to get the grass properly. Yeah as a nice big sward because not only does that mean they're constantly pecking at fresh growth the, the eggs are so much tastier they really are yeah I mean, people notice that so much with our eggs yeah 
Uh, and as you again say, I think another brilliant tip is that you say, get yourself some egg boxes for four rather than six because because yeah. <laughs> I'm tight. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's so sensible because the thing is that we, I do want to give away like Adam's son and daughter-in-law were here this weekend and I mm. wanted to give them some eggs. But you're right that I tend to want to, to give it at least half a dozen or a dozen. Whereas if you give four or eight, it feels really lovely and generous, but actually you have then still got some for breakfast um, the yeah. following day and you don't end up having to go and buy your own bought eggs from the supermarket. Yeah, it's which nothing is what, worse than having to do that. Yeah, nothing yeah. Worse. But where can you get, do you just have to make them, Arthur, the, the um, four No, um, e- e- eBay. Um, you can get amazing egg boxes off eBay. Oh, so that's can, such a good tip. You can all go and have a search. You can get hexagon-shaped ones. And <laughs> and then Arthur always does this beautiful thing of decorating them incredibly with, with his beautiful drawings, which is one of the main parts of the book. Having worked and, and lived partly with Arthur over the last year, whenever he comes in in the evening, he'll get out his little black rotary pen, like with a really fine nib, and do the outline of the hen. And then he's got these beautiful, incredibly varying colored pens, which he then infills the black and white outline, including all the feather markings and everything. And this book is just the most beautiful collection of over a hundred drawings of these different, every single different hen that he loves. And they each have their own characters that you feel so strongly and, and see so clearly. And um, it's absolutely charming. Each section, rather than having a photo, when he's describing a variety, he has one of his drawings. And so tell us about, you, you've absolutely loved that part of it, haven't you, Arthur? Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the sad fact is I really thought I'd be able to go all over the country and a bit like you when you were doing the Wildflower Book, photograph as many of these rare and purebred chickens as I could find. Yeah. The, the sad reality that dawned on me quite early on was a lot of them are very hard to find. You know, rare as hen's teeth is quite apt. Yeah. Because they're just not kept how they used to be anymore. You know, a lot of the allotment plots have gone. Yeah. And a lot of the old old people that used to fancy these breeds have, have died. Yeah. And so what happens if there's no one to take these flocks on, they get divided up or they might end up at a poultry auction. And within a within a day, that whole bloodline of rare breed chickens is is dismembered. Yeah. And the the sad reality is with with bird flu and the way that's been managed in this country, it's it's happened a lot in the past two years, also because of the cost of chicken feed. Mm. So I ended up in in London uh, doing photographs at two city farms. They had a lot of rare breeds, mm. uh, but I wasn't I didn't experience what I hoped I'd experience by you know going to visit lots of people personally. I just couldn't find them. So no. the drawings really helped actually to to bridge the gap of of not having photographs of the real thing. Yeah. And and a lot of them are that you've observed in your own hens, haven't you? I mean, tell us yeah. about Claudia for instance <laughs> and the one named after your old. brother Lyndon. Yeah, so I've got I've got Claudia. She's been on the radio and and been on Gardener's World um, and she's she's like a little little chihuahua really, but she's getting quite old now. Um, she... I had to take her to London a few weeks ago to to the publishers to show them some real chickens and you could just tell she wasn't really up for for traveling <laughs> anymore but I've got I've got Linda as as hopefully a replacement who was hand reared last summer by oh, by accident okay. and she's a she's a cream leg bar like one that you've got and she's she's so tame she's almost like a great big silly parrot really oh was she the orphan was she yeah the... oh, yeah she was okay. an orphan chick from a, yes. a awful fox attack 
Yes. And she survived by hiding in a box ball, um, in the middle of a box ball. And she was only three days, three days old. <gasps> so she basically became like a little budgie from, from that day onwards. Little Lyndon is a very grumpy cockerel who, who isn't cuddly at all. Um, okay. cockerels often are a bit like that, to be honest. They become quite standoffish. He's getting quite old in the tooth. And then the others, um, I think I put in the book how some of them get names and some of them don't. Yes. But the, the thing is, if they do get names, you do end up treating them like a pet dog. You end up at the vet with them. And yes. so these ones that have got names end up costing you hundreds of pounds by the end of, by the end of their lifetime. Well, also, you tell alarming stories about taking hens to vets, which yeah, I think is worth people experiences. knowing. Yeah. Well, of course, yeah. a lot of vets don't necessarily know about hens now. No, I mean, it's getting a lot better. But um, okay. in the past past 10 years, yeah, I've had some really rocky times where I've really regretted taking them, mainly because, you know, the health of chickens wasn't really on the agenda of, of veterinary studies. No. But because chicken keeping has, has boomed again, there are better courses now. So I have got a really good chicken bet, but it's well worth before you take a chicken to any vet to just Google some reviews about vets, just so basically you're not wasting money. Yeah. Because if a vet isn't experienced with poultry, you, you it's a bit of a gamble as to what advice and what reaction you're going to get. And and you had one that didn't have bird flu at all. but Awful, the, I had an awful yeah. time. I mean, that was when I was working at the Amber Bridgewater factory. So he, the, the bloody vet nearly gave me a heart attack because he, he actually rang the ministry vet. Mm. And I thought, oh God, I'm going to get so bollocks because I thought if this gets into the press, <laughs> you know, yes. so I, you know, I was having a heart attack in the vet's waiting room. But luckily the, the ministry vet had the sense to say, no, it's not bird flu from the symptoms that you've described. Yes. And that poor hen in question, literally needed to be put to sleep because she'd she'd got eggs inside her that she couldn't lay yes and when that happens their their organs start to be poisoned sadly and there's there's very little you can do yeah but i mean that's what i love about reading it is it's very it's very empathetic to hens and you obviously truly love them but part of that is looking after them well so there's a whole chapter on sort of villains and vermin and you talk yeah. about rats and the whole issue, which of course people get very exercised about, and and foxes, and of course red mites. You know the the mites, uh, the blood suckers. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of because I'd grown up reading all these really old poultry books, I wanted to write a book that described the hens beautifully, but also kind of just gave in detail all the things I wish I'd have been told before I started to keep hens. And I think the biggest thing is is foxes because the amount of people that get hens and within a weekend they're killed yeah that happens yeah. all the time and then the rats come along because you've basically just got a mountain of chicken feed uneaten yeah and i just i just think often the attitude when people start out with farm animals is not the same attitude as when they they bring home a puppy or a you know a kitten you know farm animals are treated almost like they're just not often not treated with enough thought to make it practical yes. you know i want i want all the animals that i keep to be kept practically and also visually beautiful i'd get no enjoyment from having a, a hem run that was like a, a slum and there's no yeah. need for for them to be like that you know with just a bit of effort and just a bit of knowledge i mean there's so much education now you could go on youtube and google a million hen chicken videos and and there wasn't that when i was little but i think the combination of seeing like john's allotment and that version of keeping them yeah. and then going to deborah devonshire's farmyard and seeing you know the beautiful hem runs with wood chippings and galvanised feeders, I kind of very quickly gauged what was the right direction of keeping 
chickens well well as <laughs> yeah so it's not just aesthetics for you it's humanitarian for them which is such an important thing isn't yeah. it yeah and i'm i'm quite practical as well i mean i i would love to have my own chicken farm and i am I, i'm not a softy with them despite you know giving them names and things like that i i am quite you know if i hatch a, a bunch of male chicks i will i won't rear them up and i talk about that in the book mm. and i think a lot of of chicken books that have been done lately often shy away from that you know you do have to deal with with spare cockerels you can't let them all grow up unless you've got endless room to have them you know as bachelor flocks which I think is a bit pointless. No you taught me that also which is that yeah. I remember we hatched three here and we had two hens luckily in a cockerel and you said okay we need to put need the to cockerel deal with down <laughs> and, um, and I was like it's the sweetest looking thing. We can't possibly do that. And he said, all right, but, you know, I'm just warning you, he's going to fight with the other cockerel and because we have one mm. cockerel here, always a bantam, so it's not too aggressive. And Arthur was completely right. You know, 12 weeks later, we had this stomping great cockerel yeah. who was terrorizing, you know, not just the hens, the other cockerel and us, but it's just like we were all terrified of this thing. And it it really taught me that it's you can't be too sentimental about it. You have to you have to go into it with your eyes open. I think that's what you basically are saying in the book. Mm. Or just get hens and not a cockerel. But you, I know you feel quite strongly that it's for the pecking order and for the kindness between the hens. It's better to have a cockerel, don't you? Yeah, and I, I do love particularly in you know a situation that I remember the first time I visited Perch Hill walking around and it was full on tulip time, but it was the most lovely thing to just hear a cockerel in a country, countryside garden. Yeah. I mean, I've been living somewhere for the past couple of years, which is total countryside, but also Airbnb land. And so that aspect of, of what to me is the heartbeat of rural country life isn't there. And I find that a bit of a struggle. Yeah. But you know, I'm not, I'm I'm not adverse to to lovely homemade chicken soup. You know, I, I I am I don't eat chicken, but to me, if I'm going to eat chicken, I do definitely want it to be from my own hen coop. Because what what better life possibly could that bird have led than if I've reared it myself? Yeah, yeah. So just on on the actual contents of the book, the lovely thing, which I think is such a genius idea, is scattered all the way through. You have five different flocks. So you've got yeah. the backyard flock the kitchen garden flock, the flower bed flock, the flying flock, and the bijou flock. And Mm. it's such a good idea that you've put them in these sort of collections. And definitely for me, the ones I want are the flying flock because they're sort of able to go up into the trees, look after themselves a little bit, more like jungle fowl, you know, where they originated. But it's so useful to be able to decide, you know, do you want the ones that are like little pecan, you know, delicious fluff balls, which is the bijou flock. So talk a little bit about why you decided to divide it in that way, because I just found, I find it wonderful. Well, quite influenced by you and the way you divide up your tulips and dahlias, really, to, to be honest. But um, again, just going back to the, the chicken books that I'd liked and had, none of them had done that. And I think quite often, if you've got a large hem run and if you are in the country and maybe you're lucky enough to have a woodland, you might as well have the breeds that are really going to thrive in that setting and really take advantage of of being yeah. able to fly up into the trees and really and really act like their ancestors would. Whereas if you've just got a tiny, you know, garden and you really want just two hens for you know aesthetics and to cuddle, then you're going to want the bantams. And the problem with that is you're not going to get many eggs, but you are going to get more of the companionship. Whereas you know if you've if you've got an allotment plot and you really want you know a good 
a good half a dozen eggs being laid every day for most of the year. Um, is the backyard flock or the kitchen garden flock. And also, because the breeds are so diverse, they don't all really get on naturally with each other. Yeah. I remember when I bought you some before Pintons yes. and they were just they were just hammered because you've got breeds that were, were a lot more aggressive. Yeah. And so, you know, I've I've learned over the years that actually that is the case with with chicken breeds. They don't all just get on. There's a very interesting hierarchy that develops, but the best way to ensure a, a good hierarchy is to have breeds that are of a similar nature in either being docile or very headstrong or flighty or not flighty. Yeah, yeah. And I love the ending to the book, actually, as well as the beginning. Oh, yeah. So I, I read <laughs> the beginning. Sounds like I'm dying. <laughs> it does. I read it to Adam and he was like, well, Arthur's only 30. What on earth is going on? I know, but you, as you and Adam know I've got a very old head on these shoulders. <laughs> you have. But it's, oh, it's absolutely moving and sweet the descriptions of both your grannies uh, both Min and Sheila and um, mm. how incredibly important they are to you and how you can't be far away from your family to um, to stay happy and that uh, both your grannies and your parents and your hens are you know where your heart lies really and um, yes. and I, I, lo- I love that ending and the final thing in the book just before we finish is about your desert island flock. Yeah, the the DPS at the at the back. Yes, yeah. I just wondered if you'd maybe choose us. I don't know if you could bear to like four or five absolute favourites that you would just really wherever you were practically, as long as you had a bit of outside space, you would you would yeah, include. I'd love to do that. Um, definitely the the cream leg bars because they're just very very pretty and very sweet natured and they're very good layers of, of the lovely blue eggs yes so they'd definitely be there i love the appenzella spitz herbans that look like yes. dalmatians they're very sort of slim and funny looking aren't they yeah very catwalky and they come yeah. in either white and black or an amazing like um brown sugar tulip orange with black so i love those what else do i like i like the gold lace wine dots i think all the wine dots yes. are beautiful and they're very like roly-poly in shape they're incredible, actually. I saw yeah. some on Instagram this morning and they, they literally, they look like a tapestry that each mm. of their feathers outline with this, that black, that black highlight. Is, they're so glamorous, aren't they? Yeah, they, they really are incredible. And they come in so many different colours. There's a, there's a form that you fall in love with. Right. And then in terms of the bantams, my favourites are probably the Barbadookus because they yes. look like little wind-up toys. Yes. Are those the ones that they have at Rousham? Yeah. So yes. if anyone goes there, they there's a whole flock of them that are always in the car park and they look absolutely crackers. Yes, they um, really do. I remember seeing them yeah. with you. So final thing, where can people go through the country? I don't know, maybe three or four different places that they could go to see these rare breed hens. Well, certainly if you're in, if you're in London in a way, that's a really good place because there's so many farm parks in London. There's Stepney Farm Park. Yeah. And Mudshoot Farm Park, which is run by Tom, who did a previous episode on yes. on the podcast. There's also a farm park in Vauxhall. Mm. And they've all got a really lovely collection of, of rare breed hens. And Chatsworth in Derbyshire, if anyone fancies yeah. a, a day out to the Peak District, the farmyard there's really beautiful. I can't think of many other places, to be honest, in other parts of the world. No. I'm sure there are lots. Um, off the top of my head, I can't can't think i mean sadly all the all the poultry shows at the moment still aren't on due to bird flu yeah but there are there's hope of a vaccination being rolled out yes that's good i read about 
that in your book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but whether or not it, it gets rolled out in, in time for poultry shows to start again in the next couple of years, it'll be, a, be interesting to see how they manage to do it. So thank you so much for coming back. I think publication, it's the 6th of April, isn't it? So 6th it's of April. Just yeah. as, as we're going out with this episode and it's the most wonderful book, which I couldn't more passionately recommend. And Arthur, thank you so much for thank you, coming Sarah. on to talk Lovely about to it. Lovely to be back. Lots of love to you. Lots and love. thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange with me, Sarah Raven, joined again by Arthur, lovely Arthur Parkinson. And next week, it's me back here with Gary Newell, who is our senior horticultural buyer. And he has just got such great information on very hot off the press plants. And next week, we're going to chat about plants for the coronation. So things that somehow are slightly reminiscent of the king, what he loves, the sort of regal colours, golds, uh, lovely rich velvet, some, you know, blues, royal blues, etc. As well as, of course, plants that you can grow in red, white and blue for our gardens for this year of the coronation. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes we talk about on this podcast by heading to the show notes or at sarahraven.com forward slash podcast.